Well, uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, in my novel, Giles is an undergraduate student of English at Oxford. And as the novel begins, he's learning about the mythology of that fabulous beast, the unicorn. So here he is in a tutorial. Giles settled back rather uncomfortably into an old armchair that was showing more evidence of springs than horsehair and began to read his essay. The medieval beastery, he began, is a rag bag of information and misinformation about animals. It has no single author, but grew through additions made by many hands over the years. In the virtual zoo it presents us with, the most interesting animal is the unicorn. He paused, suddenly aware that his tutorial partner, Emily, was shifting in her seat and leaning forward about to interrupt. He guessed that it was his essay and not the chair that was causing her discomfort and was immediately proved right. Wait a moment, she protested. I've read the only medieval English version of the beastery there is and there's no unicorn in it. I even went to the trouble of reading the whole bloody thing, not just the selection in the reader we were given. I found it in the notes at the back and I looked it up in the library. It's a manuscript in the British Museum and there's absolutely no unicorn in it. No way. There's, she consulted her own essay, a lion, an eagle, a serpent, an ant, a heart, a fox, a spider, a whale, an elephant, two kinds of doves, a panther, and a seductive looking mermaid. But that's all. I was rather fond of the elephant myself. She leant back and looked for approval at the tutor. But he said nothing beyond murmuring, that's traditional for mermaids. <laughs> but one has to beware of drowning, of course. Giles found to his surprise that Emily was more interesting than he thought. And he tried not to look at her plunging neckline, barely covering an expanse of round freckled skin, which was rising and falling more quickly with the effort she was making to get her point across. Her head with its reddish hair was tilted up aggressively as if welcoming a fight. He checked himself and returned to the argument. The English beastery is only a selection from a Latin version, he pointed out. There are about 150 animals in the 12th century Latin text and the unicorns definitely there. I thought we were reading English, she retorted. It's a bit unfair bringing in the Latin. This is a medieval English tutorial, you know. John of Trevisa, 1397, he murmured. What did you say? She said, startled. In 1397, Trevisa translated a Latin commentary on the bestiary written in the 13th century. Trevisa wrote in English, and the unicorn's there, really there. I read the notes at the backer of the reader as well and found the Oxford edition of Trevisa on the shelves in the college library. I was just skimming through it to see what animals it had and I found a unicorn, though he starts off by calling it a rhinoceros. And he thought, I haven't been able to get it out of my mind since then. The tutor agreed that Trevisa could indeed be counted as medieval English prose. He indicated delicately that Giles had shown promising initiative in the matter of footnotes and is all good well for the future. Emily was silenced for the moment, yet not 
unwillingly as she was becoming intrigued by what looked like the most passionate engagement with literature she'd yet seen from Giles. So what did you learn from John of Treviso about unicorns, inquired the tutor, scanning his bookshelves intently as if he expected to see the ancient author emerging from their dark recesses. Giles continued to read his essay. Treviso reports that the unicorn is an extremely strong beast with one horn in the middle of his forehead, which is very sharp and at least four feet long. No hunter can catch him, but he can be caught by a stratagem. A virgin girl is led to where he lurks around and then she sits down. She opens her lap and the unicorn comes and lays its head in it, losing all its fierceness. Drawings in various manuscripts show her sitting under a tree and holding him affectionately by the horn. The hunters, hiding nearby, can easily catch him or spear him to death. The image which Treviso offers us is a symbol of love that has endured through the ages, presenting us with a lover who's willing even to die for the sake of the one he loves. Hold on there! interrupted Emily tersely. Hold on! Don't you see it's the old story all over again? It's the woman's fault. She's the deceiver, the betrayer. She not only deceived Adam, but now this darling little unicorn as well. And it's all to do with sex. In fact, her sexuality. He lays the horn in her lap. There's a phallic symbol for you. She even holds his horn in her hand, good God. And then he gets himself killed. He suffers death because of the sin of the woman and the sin of her fascinating lap. Giles sat appalled. He saw the picture that he'd been carrying in his head for a week get blurred round the edges and then slowly dissolve into a dirty smear. This was a perspective on the myth he hadn't seen before. He fought back. This is typical feminist revision of literature, he said. Women critics are always wanting to find their own meaning in literature, spoiling it for others. He was quite upset. Not really fair, said the tutor quietly. The theme of deception is quite strong and it's a bit puzzling that the woman is both the lover and the betrayer, life and death to the unicorn. Scholars of the myth find all kinds of ingenious ways to reconcile them. His voice trailed away but I fear that none of them really excuse a patriarchal society. He looked quite gloomy and glanced again at his shelves as if seeking comfort in the women authors arranged there. Well, we'll leave him in his tutorial. A little later, he meets a graduate student in theology, Benedict, who's writing a dissertation about unicorns and, and what their image tells us about the way we victimize others. But something unfortunate happens to Benedict. In the set of rooms occupied by the chaplain at St. Paul's College, Detective Inspector Matthew Longley was gloomily surveying the scene in the bathroom. In the centre of the floor was a large Victorian bath. It was freestanding with feet like eagle's claws in burnished brass and with a wide lip running all around it. With ornate handles on each end of its casting, it had the appearance of a huge ceremonial urn 
funereal black outside and clinical whites within. It was full of a crimson liquid, some of it trickling over the edge and running down the sides. Floating in this container was the body of Benedict Green, wrists cut open, but no longer pumping out the blood that had mingled with the water to produce this scene of pompous death. Rigor mortis was over, and the limbs of the body moved gently on the red, viscous surface as a breeze blew in from the open door and the room beyond. Benedict's clothes, from which his wallet had been carefully extracted for identification, were piled neatly on a wicker cane chair nearby, and a fluffy brown towel stood ready on a stand. It had not been needed. Giles sets out to solve the puzzle about whether Benedict's been murdered or whether he's taken his own life, and if he's been murdered, who the murderer is. His first stop is the president of a mysterious secret society at the university called the Unicorn Society. And the president, Justin, tells him more about unicorns. Well, said Justin, the fact that the word unicorn appeared in the Latin Bible, which was used all over Europe, convinced people that unicorns must exist. After all, the Bible couldn't deceive. That was one of the two big things that made unicorns credible. There they were, in infallible scripture. The other thing was that people had the horns, between four and nine feet long. What? exclaimed Giles. They had the horns, but they couldn't have. They did replied Justin teasingly. They, they cost a king's ransom. You can see one today in Chester Cathedral. The Cathedral of St. Mark in Venice has three of them. The Venetians always had the money and the contacts for vulgar excesses. <laughs> you must be making fun of me, accused Giles, not sure whether his world had just turned upside down and now half believing in unicorns himself. Justin relented and explained, of course, the horns came from the narwhal, a whale sometimes called the unicorn of the seas. And the horn isn't really a horn, but an ivory tooth extending from the narwhal's mouth, not its forehead. But where the horns came from was a tremendous secret. The Arctic fishermen of Canada, Greenland, and Russia made a very good living out of exporting the tusks and managed to conceal the truth for hundreds of years but I still don't understand why owning a horn was so important, complained Giles. There must have been a good reason for spending all that money. There was, replied Justin, poison. Poisoning was the deadliest weapon of the time. Kings and popes, as well as anyone with a reasonable amount of goods to hand on or, or with a young enough wife to have a lover, feared it. Poison could be smuggled into a meal with little fuss a favorite weapon of women. The great thing about a unicorn's horn was that when it was placed on the dining table, it would show the presence of poison by breaking out into a sweat. Or when it was ground up into fine powder and swallowed in a drink, it would act as an antidote to poison. Did it work? Asked Giles curiously. What do you think? Replied Justin. People believed it did, and belief can have wonderful powers. 
Well, as the story unfolds, Giles discovers that his questions about the death of Benedict are solved by cracking the code of the unicorn. He follows a trail of images and stories of the unicorn, visiting art galleries and museums in Europe and the United States. He learns about the place of the unicorn in modern culture, particularly about the culture of sexuality and gender. In the course of this journey, he finds love, and his own life is threatened by mysterious forces. But to find out yourself, <laughs> you'll have to read the novel. <laughs> <laughs>